Good evening. I'm Kelly Gordon, associate curator here. And I'd like to start by thanking some of the people who've made this possible. First of all, Aaron and Barbara Levine, who not only loaned us their beautiful artwork that we're showing in the black box, but are also hosting our featured guest. And also the Lawrence A. Cohen Ring and Ringler Associates, who support the black box. I'd like to thank our director, Richard Kashalik, and our chief curator, Carrie Brower, for encouraging that we perpetuate the use of this space for new media. And then, um, it takes a village to do this. <laughs> and my colleagues, Al Messino, Sarah Gordon, Beth Kirkenich, Emily Shaw, and uh, also Malena Kalinowska, Jenny Leahy, Aaron Baisden, Glenn Dixon, Jen Rossi, Christy Mathias, and Bob Allen all had a hand in a variety of aspects of what kind of culminates tonight, even though the show will be open for another couple weeks. And then, of course, Hans. And I met him after we had already installed this work larger than I believe it's ever been shown. So I was nervous to bring him today to see it because I wasn't sure that he would be pleased. And also I'd been chasing his work around the world for years. I would see a work here or see a show there and I kept having him in my notebook and not quite following up and following through. So at the Armory Show in New York, just about this time last year, I ran into this piece and I am assuming that many of you here are fans of it. And it, I'm always looking for something that's like nothing I've ever seen before. And in Hans' work, that's kind of easy, because every time he reinvents the wheel and pieces are completely different than what came before them. And this piece made me feel like I was waltzing in a tutu, and it made me feel like he had infected my dreams. And I also noticed that this has become a space uh, that has been a retreat from all that's loud. Um, his biographical details are on the wall by the black box, so I won't repeat them now, except to say this is an extraordinary artist whose work covers many different dimensions, from drawing to writing to composing music. Uh, and also, I am pleased to share with you tonight the news that his new and very uh, most ambitious work will be shown this summer at the Venice Biennale. So, so Hans can tell you what he's been doing up till then, <laughs> but I don't think he's going to tell us much about what this summer will bring. So, Hans, oops, wait. Um, very good evening, everyone. So, I brought you some documentation on my work. Um, and hopefully I can tell you something about what it's about. Um, what you see now is not a piece of art, it's my studio building. <laughs> and I'm so proud I have it, so I'll just show it to you. No further importance whatsoever. <laughs> and that's my fan. <laughs> And so I won't show pictures of my kids. So uh, my work is multidisciplinary. So let's say the core part of my work consists of sculptures and large-scale installations. The second larger part in my work is video works, and those consist of videos, 
and animated films. And then I'm doing quite some uh, photographic work, um, large watercolor paintings uh, and drawings. And then something entirely different is uh, the writing of short stories. Um, when I started to study arts in Brussels at the art college, I started off at a bachelor degree in um, painting. And then I somehow got stuck in painting as, a, as an approach or a material or a medium because I found my little tricks to make a painting and I found out it was too much about the little tricks and not so much about the image anymore and then I gradually evolved towards other media. And then I kind of started to change my art practice into using the most adequate medium to express a certain image. So my work is not a comment on the medium itself, it's not like making a painting about painting, but it's rather using painting as a, as a means or a tool to create an image. And then the images I produce uh, are a kind of figurative reflection upon our daily life and the way we deal with time, space and each other. Uh, at times my work tends to appear like rather melancholic um, because it's works that reflect on, let's say, how we stage life and it's always kind of uh, shown in a way that it's taking some distance. It's like the distance of a writer that is observing life and trying to capture some of it in his words. Um, my work is a lot about staging. It's like a doctor who buys a new house, cleans up a room downstairs, uh, puts some seats in and some stupid magazines on a side table, and then he declares, this is my waiting room, and we accept this proposal. It's a staged situation with certain parameters that makes us believe that it's a, a waiting room, and actually when we read this space, we go and sit down and wait. So we kind of stage everything, starting from our own little surroundings up to, let's say, a city planning, uh, the meta scale. So when I was studying arts, uh, coming from um, painting, I started to make all kinds of documentation. As the one you see now, it's a motorway diner, it's a, or a highway diner, and um, it's offering a view on the highway site over there, and I photographed it just with a very cheap uh, analog camera at the time. And I made a lot of um, photographs of deserted spaces that are uh, particularly tamed or structured uh, for activity, and then I was photographing them on the moment that they were not in use. It's like this thing you're seeing now, it looks like something strange and odd, uh, but during the daytime when there's kids playing in it, it's very normal, it kind of dissolves in its functionality. Or this merry-go-round that when it's closed down, it all of a sudden appears very differently than when it's in use. And so the scenery around us, especially the places that are structured for uh, for usage that are structured for being in use, when they're not in use, they become a, a lot more inert and static and sculptural, and they also become like scenery. The 
first little video piece I produced when I was still a student at an art college in Brussels was this one. So this is a video still of a kid seated at the backseat of a car, gazing through the rear window and looking at us. It's a kind of reenactment or a staging of something I experienced myself when at a certain point I was driving on the motorway. And on the highway, just in front of me, there was this car, very safe Mercedes-Benz car, old car, and there was a kid seated like this, and he was not waving or smiling, but just looking straight in my eyes. And I thought it was a very moving moment, because uh, it was a, a moment of identification. I could identify myself with this little kid, because it brought me back to the time that I was in this kind of nowhere zone, on the road with my parents, on those endless trips to the seaside. And a lot of my work has to do with this, this moment or this experience of timelessness. You're just somewhere mentally, but you're not performing a personality. You're not the brother of, or the son of, or the, uh, the daughter of, or the friend of, the, or the lover of. You're just kind of no one at a certain point, in a kind of nowhere zone. And that's something quite intriguing, I think, because everything we experience, the things we have experienced, for example, this afternoon, if one of you would be telling me what he or she experienced this afternoon, you would tame and structure it into a story, into a narration. So we need stories to somehow give sense to our lives. And there's nothing against it, but it's, it's just something very human to make stories. And I think the moments that we're kind of dissolving in this kind of mood or in this kind of nowhere zone, I think we we kind of, um, we're not in a story anymore. We're in touch with something profound and something essential, uh, but we cannot point it out. It's this, this kind of vague zone. And I think this is also the kind of silent, this is why my video over there is called Staging Silence. It's trying to stage or to create something that has to do something with this kind of experience of silence. Another early video piece I produced was this one, and uh, I have to be complete in my information, so i like to tell you that I made this piece before I had kids myself, because I know there's plenty of artists that start work making or producing works with kids in it when they have kids themselves. This was a visionary work. <laughs> this, is, this is maybe a self-portrait without knowing when I produced it. It's like you know, in shopping malls, train stations, in public spaces, you see those young families that have to move on, literally and figuratively. And so I made this portrait of just a very normal little family. It's not a, it's not a casted family, it's a real family, so I didn't compose the family with extras, but it's really mom and dad and their two kids, and they're on the road. Um, I had to produce a, an enormous machine to make, to make it work, so in the film studio I had this enormous running carpet, made a lot of noise and there was only one switch on it, it was a very aggressive machine, but in the film you don't see anything of that, it's a very silent movie. It's projected life-sized and the feet of the protagonists touch the floor in the space and when you enter the space, it looks as if they're approaching you, but they're running on the spot. It's, um, it's a kind of tragic comical video. The longer you watch it, the more tragic it becomes, because it's a real-time video, and you literally see them getting more and more tired. 
it's like this small organic ball of bodies that is just continuing to roll and roll and roll. Then I was working a lot on the subject of entertainment because there is something tragic to the way we stage entertainment or amusement. Seen from a re reflective distance, there's something inept and clumsy about how we try to entertain ourselves as little human beings. So when you abstract like this kitschy merry-go-round that is a world classic, you find it everywhere. Uh, when you abstract it from its broader context, like a fair, I filmed this at a, the fair in Brussels, and when you isolated from you know the protagonists so there's no kids on it there's no people but it's just the very object itself in all its kitsch colors and it's all its over-the-topness and so when you see it's projected almost life-sized the lights go on and then it starts to to move and as if photographed with a, a, a photo camera with a slow shutter speed, it kind of dissolves into this foam of movement. And this is a good example of a video loop where the loop makes sense because it's, it blurs into this movement and then it accelerates, accelerates like a crazy machine and after a while it slows down again and then it comes to a stop again and then the video restarts. So it's really like uh, reanimating the actual object through a video piece and trying to show the alienating side to these kind of weird objects that we produce. Then I was always fascinated by these kind of coin-operated machines, by these slot machines. You insert a coin and you get to see something. This is my assistant Kurt, the guy with the dreadlocks here. He's not really inserting a coin, he's just posing for the photograph, pretending he is. And so my most successful slot machine I produced was this one, insert coin for love, and I will explain you why. So when you inserted a coin in the machine, you got to see this striptease girl, and she's seated on a kind of circular stage, which is turning around, and I filmed this uh, at a peep show, not secretly, it's staged. <laughs> And you see this girl, this, this striptease girl, but she's re refusing to perform. So she's just yawning and laughing at you, but she's not doing anything. And I think what made this art piece a, uh, to a success was that people thought that if they inserted an extra coin that she would start stripping. <laughs> it's, the, it's the first art piece I made some money with, actually. <laughs> Then the second slot machine I produced was Highway Car Insert Coin. It's a ridiculous title and I use this ugly font. <laughs> um, at times I do love kitsch, um, but that's something for later on. Uh, and when you insert a coin, you get to see this poor chap. And I think this is one of the weakest or poorest constructions of entertainment mankind ever invented. <laughs> Because if you insert a coin and you put your kit in it, it just shakes back and forth. You know, when a, when a kit is seated on a, on a swing, at least it's doing something itself. But here it's just shaken back and forth. And so what you get to see in these slot machines of mine is just every time a, a kind of total non-event. People are not amused or are not entertained. The only piece I, video piece I ever produced that I didn't stage was this one. And someone told me like, yeah, after a couple of minutes, I can see that you directed it. And I'm, I, I didn't tell anything. 
that I didn't direct it because I thought if people think that I'm such a skillful director that I can do it so naturally, I'm very happy with that. So I happened to be in a, in a motorway restaurant and I happened to have my little camera with me and I just flipped open the LCD screen and I had this on my, on my camera. And I thought, wow, this is really too perfect, you know? It's two people having no conversation at all. And because you film them, and because film implies uh, an expectation of a narration or a narrative, the silence between them becomes incredibly heavy. While I think this is a perfectly happy couple. And when I showed this piece for the first time to a curator in the Netherlands, she said, oh my god, look at those people. And then I secretly thought to myself, well, you are like that too, admit it. Because I'm like that too. You know, when I'm sitting somewhere with a friend or my partner, you know, too tired, exhausted from the trip, you know, sometimes you really don't feel the need to have a, a conversation going. So I managed to tape the last five minutes of this couple sitting there and having no conversation. Like the only moment that the guy is moving his head is when a young woman is passing by. <laughs> so I will skip some work because time is limited. Um, then, at, for a certain show, I was invited to produce a new piece. Um, it was a show curated on the work of Samuel Beckett, the playwright. And as you know, there's quite some absurdity in his work. And at times, some of his characters are quite inert on stage. They don't move. And so I was thinking about amusement first, and this is a work of the same period. And then I thought, isn't it strange how we tame and structure and grid our surroundings, you know, like how we divide time in, you know, working time and leisure time and how we define consumption, etc. So I was kind of intrigued by the mega hypermarkets we have in Belgium with endless rows of cash registers. <clears throat> and so I decided to stage a video in one of those supermarkets. And so the only thing you see in the film, it's like a carousel of waiting women passing by. So there's not a single customer in, uh, in the hypermarket. They're all just waiting for some, waiting for Godot, probably. <laughs> and so they're just these women um, waiting between the chewing gum, the cigarettes, um, the plastic bags the arrangements of purses. And there's no, in these Belgian hypermarkets, we don't have any daylight whatsoever, so it's all tube lights. So it's a very slow video, and it's also a looped video, so it's like an endless ongoing thing. Then, um, when I was doing a postgraduate in Amsterdam at the Rijks Academy for two years, for the first time I produced a larger sculptural installation. So you see this guy standing over here, so it's to give you an idea of the scale of the work. So you enter a darkened space, it's entirely black, there's only some bluish light coming from the ceiling, and it falls down on this sculpted scene. And this is what you see, it's a deserted crossroads at night. And 
I first tried to film some crossroads at night, but then I was annoyed by the grainy image I got from my poor, uh, from my cheap video camera. And also when I was looking at the footage on the uh, editing set, it looked too much like a horror movie. While I really wanted to talk more about the absurdity of how we grid and pattern our lives and our surroundings. So I thought if I sculpt such a scene, when you enter the space you immediately know it's nothing but a construction. So it's not a reconstruction, I didn't copy an existing space, but I just started to produce, uh, um, to make these traffic lights, and then I made the trees, and I made the, the frozen ditches and things like that, and I tried to bring it to the point that it could become credible. And this is something that is um, always present in my work, as the people that saw the Staging Silence movie, you know it's crap, you know it's, it's a mock-up, you know it's fake, but when you accept a proposition, you can go along with it and you can mentally wander around in the image. And I think this is very close to old figurative painting. When you seat it in front of, let's say, an old uh, landscape painting, you know at all times it's nothing but a thin layer of paint on a canvas or on a hardboard. But when you accept this proposition by the artist, you can go along with it and you can literally, mentally be in there, in the image, in this kind of timeless zone. And so the only thing happening here is the traffic lights that, that keep changing. And for the rest, there's nothing going on. It's just this deserted spot. It's a kind of invitation to look at the non-event. Uh, and then I try to make the mood, the overall mood of the image, experienceable enough so that it becomes a kind of experience. These are some smaller works, but I won't talk about them. <laughs> I just flip through them. So something which is important to me is that my work is not a reconstruction of something that exists, but it's, it departs from the memory. So if I think of a swimming pool, it's most probably a kind of collected archetype kind of an image of all the swimming pools I've ever seen in my life. And so when I start to build it, it's slightly disproportioned, but I can make it look credible. And that's, some, that's, let's say, the strategy when I produce images. They're not copies of things that exist, but rather things that could exist. So my work is not, it's not science fiction, it's not a fantasy genre, it's not, you know, something like uh, a Lord of the Rings kind of setting. <laughs> it's really something that is very familiar and acceptable as a kind of image of reality, despite the fact that it's pure fiction. You could compare it to novel writing. You know, when you read a novel with characters and situations that are identifiable or recognizable, you can go along with this fiction. And so my work is a kind of fiction to talk about how we live. So I will skip this. These are some stills of the first animated film I produced with, uh, based on pencil drawings. But I'll go to another work. So these are all some stills and some images of uh, installations, but I'm going to talk about the next one. 
This installation, it was the first uh, on a larger scale, so the drawing clarifies a bit the construction. So you have a guy sitting here on a seat, and through a window, it's a kind of diorama principle. So through the window, he's looking at a kind of constructed outdoors. So it's different than the nightly crossroads where you could walk around the actual thing. Here there is a window between you and the image. So here you see a spectator, she's sitting here. And through the window you overview a kind of constructed outdoors. It's a work of 10 by 12 meters. I can only express it in meters, I'm sorry. <laughs> and so what you look at is a kind of rather filmic image, let's say. So it's the image of a kind of ideal little suburban uh, garden village. In the 50s in Belgium, um, because my, this is something very personal, my parents divorced when I was 11 years old, and uh, my father moved to one of those um, areas where they have a couple of social housing blocks, but they also had, they also had a kind of social uh, or urbanistic project. So it's like architects and real estate developers that invent a kind of instant village with uniform houses. I'm sure you have them in the States as well. Uh, and they are mostly articulated or um, conceived for a specific group. And um, I tried to put myself in the position of an architect in the 50s being commissioned to develop something like that. So the first thing I did was to develop a kind of ridiculous little house with a front yard and a backyard, everything nicely uh, and neatly fenced off with concrete slabs, a post box, some stairs, a bench to sit down on a little tree. I made a basketball yard over here and a playground for the kids, and in the middle of the crossroads I put this fountain which is still optimistically and stubbornly pumping up water. Uh, it's the only activity, the fog in the landscape and this little fountain. I wanted to show this small utopia conceived by planners, by urbanists, by architects, this small ideal utopia being ruined again. So what I did, I first sculpted perfect houses, they were about this size, and then I started to ruin them. <laughs> so really like instant ruins. And you don't know what happened. When you're looking at a piece, it's kind of peaceful, but melancholic at the same time. And it could be a civil war that went through it. It could have been an earthquake or a natural disaster. You don't know. The only thing you see is like this little village as a silent witness to something that took place, but you don't know what exactly happened. <clears throat> this is another video piece, but I won't talk about it now. Uh, then in the year 2002-2003, I lived in New York. Um, I was a resident at the PS1 program. And I couldn't deal with the scenery of Manhattan, the Bronx, Brooklyn, whatever, because it's overly documented, you know, photographed, filmed in, etc. So I thought it was also too much, too recognizable as a scenery for my work, because I like scenery which is credible somehow, but that doesn't really exist, so it could also not be an existing city that I'd use for a new, a new piece. So what I did is I wrote a kind of adaptation of my first uh, short story, 
and I made a film which had an approach comparable to Dogville of Lars von Trier. I don't know if some of you have seen that film. It's like a very theatrical proposition. When you see this film, which is called My Brother's Gardens, you immediately know it's just a bunch of young actors and some scenery made on scale and life-sized, and they're telling you or bringing you a story. And I thought it was kind of interesting and close to my large-scale installations that I will talk about later on, um, that you know at all times it's just something fake. It's just a proposition. Um, but then it's up to you whether you go along with the story or not. And it's a bit complex to give a short version of this, uh, or a short content uh, to this story, but it's a story about three brothers that in the beginning of the story seem to be very different, but at the end of the story you understand that psychologically the three of them all try to create a kind of safe cocoon around them in order to deal with uh, their lives. It's called My Brother's Gardens because the main character in the movie lost the use of his legs and starts to draw gardens initially to really actually make a garden on the piece of uncultivated land he bought together with his house. But then gradually it becomes like a mental exercise and he loses lose grip on reality and starts to live in his paper fiction. So these are just some video stills. And then I also produced some sculptures that were related to the film. It's like over-the-top fake nature, um, where you decide on everything yourself. It's like, it's not trying to copy nature, but so I made these ponds and I made several kind of artificial representations of tamed or structured nature. It's like when we, when we make parks, we think it's close to the sublime of the, of the real uncultivated nature, but of course that's not true. <laughs> so we are kind of clumsy in representing the sublime of nature. Um, then I also produced an animated film which is called Loss. It's a film uh, presented in a kind of setting of a left-behind bunker and through a fake window over here you're looking at a projection. It's an animated film. It starts by a kind of view through the window and then gradually these top culture gardens, you know, like Italian uh, Renaissance gardens, they slowly evolve towards the destructed landscape. So you go from highly cultivated landscape to destructed landscape. And so these are not paintings but drawings on computer. And so gradually everything evolves towards a destructed landscape. And that's the end of this movie. Then in 2004 I had my first large uh, solo show in a museum ever. It was at uh, the Gem, which is the, the, wing, the contemporary wing of the Gemeente Museum in The Hague in the Netherlands. And there I produced my first really, really large work. And I'm happy it's installed permanently somewhere so that I don't have to take it down and put it up again. Uh, at that time I didn't employ assistants, now I have a, a full-time team of five assistants, but at that, that time it was me on my own working with volunteers. 
and it's wonderful that people are volunteering, but sometimes it goes very slow <laughs> and it's complicated to organize. So I was very happy I was helped out by students of the Academy of The Hague, but it was a very tough construction to make. So you see this man standing here, so you understand that 12 by 24 meters is really, really, really large. So this is my construction. You enter here, you climb the stairs, and then you enter this evocation of a motorway diner. Now in Europe we have those motorway diners that are stretching the highway. I don't know if they exist here in the States as well. But So you have the cars flashing underneath uh, your feet. And so this is a life-sized construction and through the window you overview this sculpture of 12 by 20 meters and it's constructed with an exaggerated perspective. So the first street light is very high and the last one is very small. Uh, and the road narrowed, narrows down towards the horizon and everything is constructed or sculpted in a slant of 9 degrees. So when you sit down at those diner tables it looks as, it's, as if it's a, a road of miles and miles. So this is the result. Uh, so these are two spectators sitting down in the life-sized part. To me it's important that everything is handcrafted. So the seats and the tables, um, the counter, the landscape, the, uh, the street lights. Uh, by making the objects yourself, you can define it more. It's like making a drawing or a painting in which you decide to keep everything achromical except for those orange lights that you paint with orange light or with orange paint. Um, when I would use ready-made objects, um, then I could not mold and define everything as much as I can when I produce them at the studio. <clears throat> So this now became a permanent installation in Japan, so I'm afraid, you know, that uh, it might be damaged now. <laughs> but I understand that contemporary art is not the first concern in these situations. <laughs> so it was not meant to be to, be, to being a permanent installation. Um, but the nice thing about this installation when I showed it uh, for the first time is that I uh, noticed that people stayed in for a very long time. While for a painting, if people pass by a painting, mostly they look a couple of seconds to it. And this is kind of inviting people to be part of the first plan of the painting, to sit down in the painting and gaze uh, towards the horizon. It's a non-event, there's not a single car flashing by, it's just empty. It's a non-event. And it's an invitation to sit down and to take some time and this is how it's, this is the, la the last and permanent version I produced of the work. So I made um, some modifications to the architecture of the initial piece and I changed the landscape a little bit. This is how it's installed in a, at the Tawada Art Center in Japan. And it's a nice, a nice thought that people can just sit, sit down in it during the daytime and find themselves close to a nocturnal European night. Another installation I produced is this one, it's called T-Mart. It's a kind of fictive um, hypermarket, so you see the letter T standing here. And what you do is you can look inside the interior of this construction. So the roof of this fictive or fictional 
supermarket is open and I project light onto it. So there is an abstract animated film I project onto the shelves and the cash desks, etc., of the interior of the supermarket. It's an empty supermarket. It's like as if all the goods still have to be brought in. It's like the skeleton of the, the supermarket. And by animating the interior of this uh, supermarket, uh, at times it looks like the inside of a computer, like a motherboard, a motherboard of a computer with all the connections. Uh, and sometimes it looks more like a, an abstraction of a city with uh, social housing blocks. So it, talk, it talks about all kinds of grids and patterns of, on, on micro and, and macro level. And it's not like a judgment on cons consumption, uh, but it's rather like trying to show both the beauty and the ugliness of uh, this kind of uh, surroundings that are extremely rationalized. I'll go to some, yeah, I even made some of those ridiculous things. <laughs> and they're very absurd because you cannot even put a kid in. <laughs> So this is a kind of evocation, and I like to talk about evocations because when I talk about reconstructions, then I would be lying because it's not ex existing. But we do have those small supermarkets in Belgium with an entrance, uh, with, in, in a slant, and with gliding doors. And so I made a kind of sculptural interpretation. It's life-sized. And so you can enter here, but you have these two slot machines that lead a life on their own. So all of a sudden they start to move. They look very sweet, don't they? <laughs> and then I made a construction, a life-sized construction. It was a pain in the ass to produce. It's a kind of... Um, it's an it's a evocation of a nocturnal park. Um, it's entirely fenced off with concrete slabs, and so also everything is sculpted, the merry-go-round, uh, these things for the kids, the garbage bins, the swing, etc. And the funny thing is that when I produced this, so as a spectator you can literally walk around and wander around in this space. It's as if you're walking through a 3D version of a Hitchcock movie without the protagonists. Um, it's absurd and it's entirely black and white and you are the only colored thing in there when you walk through it. It's very silent, there is a kind of soundscape. If you walk around the merry-go-round you hear children's voices exchanging secrets and singing children rhymes. So it's, it's a kind of very dreamy kind of image. But the nice thing is as kitsch as it is, you know, like using fake snow is very kitsch, a very kitsch thing to do. But when I showed it at the Kunstverein Hanover in Germany, people told me that it was very nice I switched off the heating. But I didn't. So there was a Pavlov reaction, you know, like the body sees darkness and snow and says, oh, it must be cold in here or something like that. So there was even, despite the fact that it's overly clear that it's a reconstruction or an, no, not a reconstruction, an evocation or something, and that it's fake, it can also cause a kind of physical reaction to it. So I'm going to skip some works here. 
And just to contrast with this black and white worlds, um, I made a film in which the camera makes a very slow movement along three table moments. It's a marriage, and this marriage is situated in uh, a background which is very recognizable from my own bio biography. <laughs> from my own biography, I, I grew up in interiors that were quite strangely decorated. Um, and all kinds of strange colors. <laughs> of course, as a kid, you don't have the reflective distance to that, but when you get older, you understand how strange these aesthetics are. So I made three table moments, and one is a marriage, another one is a kind of celebration of a pater familias who becomes a father of a family who becomes 60 years old and invites his kids and their relatives and their beloved. And then there's a third scene which is a, a pie and coffee moment after a funeral. It's a tradition in Flanders, the part of Belgium I come from, to have cherry pie and rice pie and coffee after a funeral. So the camera moves very slowly, it's on the speed of 50%, and through all the gestures of the people that you see in the image, you understand what's going on. It's like the bride and the broom, there's already something wrong between them. <laughs> the father of the bride is drunk, he's really, really drunk, and he wants to get up and give a speech, and his wife said, shh, no, you sit down, and this is your last glass of wine. So there is no, you cannot understand their conversations, but through this long choreography of small banal gestures, you understand what's going on, who's gossiping about who and things like that. And who's looking where he shouldn't be looking. <laughs> and who's the auntie that laughs too loud always, things like that. This is more like a, another type of surrounding with trimmed conifers and a very nice uh, concrete loft and good clothes. A bit more about keeping up appearances. And then the third scene is this one. Um, it's all people that are older than 70 years old, which can make you understand that the deceased didn't have any relatives anymore, and that just, the, you know, like the one or another club of people shows up, just that, you know, that there's at least some people uh, after the funeral to gather around and to, to talk about the deceased. And so this is the same kind of thing, um, a kind of gathering of people and you understand what's going on between these people. Then I produced a sculpture which is named Table One. It's the first table in a series of. <laughs> And it's a table produced on scale one and a half, so it's not a, a gigantic um, Klaus Oldenburg blow-up. It's uh, on a slightly disturbing scale. When you see the, the table standing over there, it looks life-sized, but when you approach it as an adult, you shrink to the proportions of a six-year-old. And so what I said about ready-made objects, to me it's important that I can produce the, the things at the studio. So everything is on scale one and a half. I have, for example, those cigarettes. They're a smoker's dream, really <laughs> cigarettes like this. So what I did was, so th there are two adults standing here to give you an idea of the proportions. 
The entire space is extremely white, the light inside is also extremely white, and the only thing that has color is the ephemeral objects, the, the, you know, the goods, the, the food, the leftovers of coffee and the cigarettes. So it's like in a dream image, you know, like when you dream, also everything tends to be disproportioned. The proportions are not correct, and it's only when you wake up that you realize like, oh my God, my living room, it was hilariously large, you know, in your dream. And during your dream, it feels very natural. But when you wake up, it changes, perception changes. And so in this installation, I wanted to make everything as immaterial as possible. So the light is so diffuse that there is hardly any shades in this installation. It's slightly dis disorient disorienting when, when you walk into this space. And so the only things that, that are highly hyper-realistic is the, the leftovers of pie and the cigarettes and the coffee. Then I produced a smaller sculpture, which is called Christmas. It's not without irony. I produced this sculpture at my studio. It's a very typical Flemish setting. So my parents also produced a very modern house at their time. But then they moved in those seats that are really old-fashioned and far too heavy to move in. So this kind of eclectic taste. And then in our families, we always have an, an uncle that produces side tables himself with tiles and wood. So I put a kind of hidden information inside this setup. Uh, so you see this pick and span representation of a Christmas event which is about to take place in a family. And when I was sculpting this with Kurt, with my first assistant uh, at uh, the woodwork place uh, at the studio, it was still all in MDF color and polystyrene because the cushions we produced in polystyrene and then we covered it with, uh, with material so we could spray paint it, etc. And uh, my, my assistant Kurt said, okay, what colors are we going to use? And I said, I'm thinking of this ugly BM BMW metallic black. And he said, no, <laughs> you're going to ruin all, all the work we did. And I said, yes, I'm going to do it. <laughs> because I like to slightly disturb the image. So it's a very strange object to look at because it's so dense and so dark. At the same time, it's a very you know, plausible and cliche kind of family ritual. And it's, it's nice to, you know, to shift the perception of these kind of things. Yeah, and this is really, um, <laughs> I couldn't help myself to produce a big, fat, ugly cake. <laughs> it, it, it has no, no, there's no, there was no reason whatsoever for me within my oeuvre to produce this, but I just wanted to make it. <laughs> And then I, like uh, two years ago, or three years ago, I was invited to do some lectures at the Arizona State University. And I happened to have one day that I could make a film. And I thought, I thought okay, so I was back home in Brussels, and I was on the internet, and I used Google Earth to find my location. And I found this, the Superstition Mountains. And uh, I thought, that sounds great as a location. And then I phoned, from Belgium, I phoned a Mexican caterer. And I said, hello, I'm Hans Obdebeek, which is like <coughs> very, str very strange, strange name to introduce yourself. Hans what? I said, yes, Hans Obdebeek, I'm an artist. 
and uh, I'd like you to put up like a wedding setting in the desert. <laughs> and she really didn't believe me up to the point that I showed up in Phoenix. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, so it's really true? I said, yes. <laughs> And so it was really, really big fun because I had to cast all the people, you know, from, from Belgium. So I, um, I had to find the people to show up there and they were putting on their, their, you know, their waiter coats and everything just in the desert. And the park ranger said like, you know, watch out for scorpions and snakes. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. <laughs> And there were all kinds of strange stories about the people that I casted. So I contacted a casting studio, you know, you know, where you can find extras. And some guys were military guys, and they had all kinds of strange stories. And I thought, I don't want to know. Let's just make the film. <laughs> and the reason why I produced this image, it's like it's projected life-size. So when you enter the space, it's like a tableau vivant. Nothing's happening. It's just the wind is blowing through it. You hear the birds and nothing's going on. The, the, the waiters are just waiting for the, the party to start, and they're looking at you. And that's all that happens. And I thought this was a nice image, because my Mexican caterer, she said, I have these, plast I have these plastic pillars. They're great. I said, yes, let's use them, because they were so ridiculous. I thought, we really have to use So we put them up here. And they were extremely lightweight, so they were blown away by the wind constantly. <laughs> and I thought this is really how we are. This is what I try to do in my artwork. It's really try to show the tragicomical side to life. It's like those mountains, they are thousands of years old. They don't mind that we put up something ridiculous in front, you know? This is how we stage our rituals. It's ridiculous. But at the same time, it's something we give big value to. And we're right. If I, if I stage, for example, the room of my kids, I take it very seriously because they grow, grow up in it and it's important. So it's both serious and ridiculous at the same time. And that's kind of my point. I don't want to be overly melancholic in my work, but I, I like to show the funny and the tragic side or the ridiculous side and the serious side to life, as I try to do with uh, staging silence, where the hands are just fooling around with all the scenery, but at the same time, it's kind of serious as well. Then I produced this. It's a kind of Belgian version of the Zen garden, so there's also some humor in it. Uh, Outside, it really looks like a staged setting. Setting. It's not painted on. It's just a rough wood as the, the backside of uh, theater scenery. And when you go in, you have this little absurd little garden with this very rectangular little pond with lilies on it. And this is a spectator, so he's not part of the installation. <laughs> so this is this really tiny little garden, which is kind of absurd and ugly, but peaceful at the same time. And then for some weeks I was a patient uh, in the hospital near uh, Brussels in Jette. It's like uh, just outside of Brussels. And it's the very hospital where my three kids were born and a good friend of, my, of mine passed away. And when I was laying there horizontal for three weeks, I was thinking about how absurd it is that we tend to isolate the most beautiful moments or most intense moments of our lives from our daily surroundings and, and put it in this kind of scenery. It's like, you know, like the birth of your kids 
in Belgium, it, you can make it happen at home as well, but I felt like a bit, I was a bit scared <laughs> that something would go wrong, as many parents are. But it was kind of amazing that, you know, the, the very scenery of those moments is the hospital building, which is not like the fanciest or most nice architecture you can imagine. And then I thought that on floor one people are born, kids are born, on floor seven people die, and on the other floors people get cured and consoled. So it's like a, a, an incredible cruel short version of life you find in the hospital. And then I thought this is an interesting building to think about as a metaphorical concept. And then I started to develop my own over-the-top hospital. I showed this piece in Italy and someone said, what a marvelous building. And I thought, well, she really didn't understand <laughs> what my point was, but that's okay, you know. So I made this kind of typical postmodern showing off kind of landmark building-ish architecture. So I first produced the model, and then I made an animated film in Maya, which is a complicated com computer program. But there you can make imagery that looks really photorealistic. And so in this film, which is called The Building, uh, you kind of navigate through my mega hospital. And I made it very posh. Because I thought if I would use like a very poor aesthetics, like a poor and rough hospital, it would be over the top and not communicative. I thought I'd make it very smooth. It's, it's like some very expensive private clinics. They, in their promotion talk, they try to sell illness as a kind of uh, lifestyle product. Come over here with your cancer, we'll smooth it out, there's a nice spa resort. <laughs> no, I'm exaggerating, I'm sorry. So I thought I'm just going to use this kind of typical over-the-top kind of architecture, and you navigate through this building, this slumbering monster at night, so there's a, an elevator opening, or elevator or lift. Um, opening and there's no one there so it has aspects of the suspense movie and then then I designed a kind of nice intensive care unit well now, now I'm very ironical about it but it's just a way to deal with it you know so it's a kind of this animated film is a kind of experience it takes you into this fiction <clears throat> and you can recognize the Guggenheim in it I admit or something like that so it's a uh, it's a kind of way to talk about how we stage things and how we deal with things. And I also made a kind of Bang & Olufsen version of an intensive care unit. But it exploded a bit. So there is like 50 or 60 serum bags. And I projected light onto it, so it's animated by light. And when I showed this at the Central Museum in Utrecht in the Netherlands, there was an art critic who wrote an intensive care unit I would love to lay down in. <laughs> and, but she was right. This is exactly what I wanted to have. It's funny, but it's very serious at the same time. It's a kind of uh, configuration of apparatus that you don't want to see too often in your life. But at the same time, I made something fairytale-like uh, out of it. And so the perception is kind of twisted. So these are also not ready-mades, but sculpted objects. And then I created a kind of, I was making these kind of sculptures at that time, and I made a kind of nerd desk, like a computer nerd's dream. 
it's an explosion of hardware and lamps and a, a massive spaghetti of wires. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's all produced um, uh, in wood and steel, so it's an interpretation of the very objects. Like a laptop is very easy to sculpt nowadays. It's just two sheets of wood. And then I also produced another installation uh, in that period, which is this left-behind luggage. And lost luggage is really interesting, because you always wonder what's inside about personal objects, you know, like lost luggage at the airport. And I thought, you know, using some th something that, used to, that has to be on the way or that has to be dynamic normally, just by putting uh, a kind of velvet sculpture of uh, a group of luggage uh, together, it's a bit like Pompeii, you know, like, like it's frozen in the action. It has a very soft uh, skin. It's, it's all velvet and smooth and soft, soft gray tones. And it's something very banal, but it's very nice to try to, to use very banal daily life objects and turn them into a kind of a bunch of questions or something different. These are some small watercolors, but I'm flipping through them. And they were all related to the extended body, let's say. An extension of the body is architecture, is high-tech, is prosthesis, is computer, is surgery. And these are some video stills of an animated film entirely based on black and white watercolors that I produced, which is called Extensions. <clears throat> So I will skip some work because I'm running out of time. Um, then one of my last large-scale works is a panorama. In Europe and also here in the States, you have this 18th century tradition to produce panoramas. It's like paintings that entirely surround, surround you. And those things were meant to be a spectacle, something that overwhelms the spectator and evokes, for example, an historical scene, a war scene, or things like that. And I thought, it's nice, you know, like this kind of effort to represent the infinite surrounding landscape, because you know you will always fail. Climb any mountain anywhere, and you will always have a more spectacular view than any panorama that we can produce. But I'm kind of interested in human failure, because that's also why we can sympathize with mankind, <laughs> because we do fail. And um, so I made a kind of research. I made small models on all kinds of panoramic constructions. And then I finally produced a panoramic construction myself, which is this installation. It's four meters of height and 18 meters of diameter. And there's a long corridor that leads you to the heart of the installation. So there's two spectators sitting here on a bench. And when you sit down in this observatory, you're entirely surrounded by an infinite snow landscape. And some people said like that I always produce dark works. And I thought, OK, I'll make something very white now. And this is an extremely white work. It's almost like looking at the white square of Malevich. It's white fog, white light. Uh, white snow, frozen puddles, and it's like an overall composition. There's no hierarchy in it, there's no um, anecdotal elements like uh, a house or something in it. It's just trees. It's like the very end scene of staging silence. 
but then enlarged to uh, 300 square meter construction. Oh, so a very tiring thing to put up and to take down. Uh, but it was a very nice way to invite people to look at something which is not spectacular, but just very serene and calm and peaceful. And of course the outside is just a rough wooden construction, the inside is very clean and white and finished. And then in between those big, fat, large productions that use all the energy of my body, I like to make paintings at night, just solely on my own, on my own by myself. It's quite comparable to writing. It's just you and your text and your computer. Uh, it's a very peaceful kind of activity. And throughout the past two years, I started to produce large black and white uh, watercolors. And they're quite close to my installations. They're not existing spaces, um, but they try to invite you to enter the mood or um, the setup. So they're very theatrical and frontal in their compositions and therefore refer strongly to the Renaissance kind of uh, painting. But it's all kinds of... So these images, they derive from different uh, periods. So they don't have so much to do with each other, but it's the same medium and it's the same size. So the largest are about one meter and 10 by three meters. So they're quite big. And it's large sheets of uh, watercolor paper that are stretched on a large uh, sheet of wood. <clears throat> And these are some stills of the video you saw. <laughs> Staging silence. And then I'm uh, ending this talk with my last work, um, which is a project. This is, by the way, um, a smaller sculpture. Um, it's an imaginary house. It's a fictive house which kind of mixes early modernism with cottage style. And it's the kind of house that you'd see in, uh, let's say, Psycho of Alfred Hitchcock. This mysterious house, you know, when, you, uh, when you're biking past these kind of houses at, at coastal areas, you always ask yourself, who's living there? Or what kind of family dynasty lived there? Or did something tragic happen in there? And things like that. So this was a kind of genre exercise concerning architecture, but I will go to my last project. So a couple of years ago, I was invited to do a show at Saint-Nazaire, which is a coastal city in uh, Normandy in France. And they invited me to do a project there. And I went there. It's a faraway place, and I had no idea what I would do. And then I discovered that after the Second World War, they started to produce parts of airplanes and also produce ocean liners, you know, those very large cruise liners. And then I thought this is a very, very good archetype, or um, let's say metaphor for how we deal with time and space and each other nowadays. So the whole year we, we work from nine to five or later, and then we have those two or three weeks to take holiday, and then we don't like to think too much or do too much efforts. So we're looking for a kind of escapistic moment, which is um, really fine to me, 
But it's another way of traveling than we used to have. When people took an ocean liner, let's say from, this, from Normandy in France to the United States, it was really to discover a new world and to experience the sea and the elements. When you take a sailboat and you're underwater, you taste the salt, you feel the wind, uh, everything shaking and moving. Now on the ocean liners, they're so stable that even with stormy weather, you hardly notice it on the boat. And the cruise liners nowadays are so much concentrated on the leisure on board that you could say that it's like floating shopping malls, you know, or gated communities, overly safe, preconceived, entirely taken care of. And so there's something quite remarkable. Everything seems to be concentrated on the inside, what's been offered concerning leisure on board, but not so much about the voyage, about the traveling, about experiencing the elements, about experiencing distance. And I thought this was a very nice concept because nowadays we think in such categories as the largest and the highest, etc. For example, the highest building in the world is currently in Dubai. It's an ugly building, you know. It, it's not comfortable, it's strange, it's not really successful because they did, didn't manage to sell all the floors. There are, there are electricity problems. So all kinds of problems, but it's the highest building in the world. And one of the saddest moments in my life was when I was showing my, and this is really funny, I was showing my snow panorama in Singapore where they never see any snow. It was 35 degrees Celsius, I was sweating like hell, and I was making this snow landscape in there. But when I was there with my assistant Kurt, we went to see the largest fountain in the world. And it was in the middle of a shopping mall. And <laughs> when we arrived there, it was was not working and there's nothing more sad than a not functioning largest fountain in the world. So I thought, okay, we like to mythologize these things, you know, people are proud that they have the largest fountain in the world. So I thought, okay, it's the same as landmark building architecture, you know, we all know that the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao is a beautiful Gary building, but the inside is horrible to make an exhibition in. So, but it put Bilbao on the map, so there are different things that are... Um, to think about. And um, so I thought we like to create myths. We like, I think, next to food and, 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 and drinking things, we, we have this need to create stories. So if you have, for example, a, a museum which is dedicated to, to a local historical uh, persona, a person, uh, then you will see his or her clothing, uh, some relics like porcelain, uh, and it will all be understandable for an average 12-year-old. So we, re re we reduce what has been there to an understandable story. So I thought, okay, I made my own hospital, now I'm going to make the largest cruise, line, uh, cruise liner today myself. And I called it the Sea of Tranquility, like most names of ocean liners are like the Queen Mary II, something with royalty, or they have names that refer to the sea. And Sea of Tranquility to me was a kind of nice concept because it could, be, it could imply that it's a very peaceful boat, but it could also imply that nothing's going on on this ship. Um, you know, if we would have a coffee now in the city, you know that people uh, are making love, that people are fighting, that accidents happen, that there is improvisation. But on board of the ocean liner, nothing is unforeseen, nothing is not prepared or preconceived. 
And so I, I thought I invent my own cruise liner and as an exhibition I make a whole fictive museum around it, glorifying my fantastic cruise liner. But then I thought I have to make something strange about it. So I made my fictive museum as a museum that you seem to enter at night when everyone's gone and when there's just a couple of lights uh, still on, like for example this uh, showcase here. There's no objects, there's just the crates. It's, it's as if people are still in, installing uh, the small museum. And then this life-sized hyper-realistic person is the actor who plays the role of the captain in my film, which is also on view in my little museum. And so you have a very tricky game with the status of representation and something authentic. It's not a real captain, it's not a real uniform, because it's the uniform, uniform I designed for the film, with the Sea of Tranquility logo on it, so you see it here. And so it's not a captain, but the representation of a captain. But then again, it's an actor, but it's not the real actor himself. So there's a very tricky and strange game with real and representation in, the, in this nocturnal, nocturnal museum. This is the chambermaid, who's also in the film as an actress and as a chambermaid, but she's also in the exhibition. And both the captain and the chambermaid have their eyes closed. That's in contrast with the Madame Tussaud museums where the celebrities are very present with eyes wide open. These two characters that show my costume design of the film, it's like you can imagine a museum dedicated to a certain battle of the First World War, let's say. You will see a British uh, soldier in full uniform just to see how it looked like. In my case, I show the uniform of the board personnel of my ship. And I also have this large model of my boat the design of my cruise liner is a bit atypical. I contacted a boat engineer because I was afraid that if someone like that would enter my exhibition and start laughing like this will never float, you know, that would be not so nice. So when I was designing the boat, when I was making the architectural plans, I really consulted people to know whether it would be possible or not. So this is the longest cruise liner to date. It's seven, 700 meters. <laughs> And it will be the longest for decades to come. <laughs> but my boat engineer said it's possible. <laughs> he said it will use a lot of fuel, but I said it's not important. I've, I've money, you know. So this is a, a ship that doesn't exist. And instead of using, you know, like the Queen Mary II that they just finished in Saint-Nazaire when I was there a couple of years ago, it looked like the Titanic. Strange enough. So the outside was like a Art Deco look uh, with red and white and, and black. And I thought, I'm not going to use like the pseudo Art Deco that they used on the Queen Mary II or the shopping mall kitsch. Let's use the landmark building style. So I put myself in the position of Hadith or Gary. And I thought, okay, I'm going to make a cruise liner that they could have made. And uh, so that's how it looks like. It looks quite military. <laughs> so this is inspired by military airplanes because I thought if it's about people that like to isolate themselves on their fancy boat, it has to be self-protective. And this is how my ship looks like. But then in the show, there's not only this black, dark, mysterious jewel of a boat, but there's also another plinth displaying this scene. 
So there are containers piled up in what seems to be like a part of the industrial harbor, and you see beds inside. And this is what I heard in Senazer. The commissions to construct a mega big fat ocean liner in Senazer are too big for the city itself. So they have to ship in workers from Malaysia, from India, from all over the world. And it always is a social bloodbath. So because of the new largest cruise liner to date, they ship in workers from India, they don't pay them or send them back too early because they don't happen to have the right skills. They house them in improvised beds and things like that. So this is the background to this story of, let's say, Dubai, of all these places where people are working, doing hard work, unprotected, without helmets and so on. And then there's this projection space in the exhibition, which, which looks like, like this. And if you like to see it, I have the film here. Uh, it's ready to show, but I know my lecture is lasting far too long. I also made some porcelain, you know, with the logo on it. <laughs> a plate is just a plate for us, right? But um, when an archaeologist finds a plate of 200 years ago, he goes nuts. You know, it's like, wow! But it's just a plate, let's be honest. But when it's a plate of the real Sea of Tranquility, it's something special. <laughs> so, um, I would like to end my talk and invite you to watch the film that I produced. The film I produced is a combination of 3D rendered spaces, so photorealistic spaces that I designed on computer, uh, mixed with recordings of actors in the studio, in a green key studio. And the technical term is compositing, so you can put them together. So it's a kind of high-tech version of staging silence. <laughs> it was an enormous, difficult production. And it's a film of half an hour, so that might be a bit long, but I would really, really love, love to invite you to see the, the American premiere of this movie tonight. <laughs> so I have to glorify it a bit. <laughs> It's a film that takes you on board of my fictional cruise liner. And there is no conversation. The only text in the film is sung by the local jazz diva. And she's singing a song which goes like, I long for a sea of tranquility. That's the refrain. And it's the first time that I was so pretentious to make the song myself. <laughs> So I composed the song and I wrote the chords I used on the guitar and uh, the text I wrote uses all the obliged metaphors of the genre, like don't know why the skies turn so gray and so on. But I must say that cliches, and this is also why I'm not afraid of using cliches in my work, cliches do work at times. It depends on the moment that they arrive. It's like when you're in an emotional mood and you hear like the most kitschy song or you see a, a dad and his son, you know, in slow motion in a soap opera and they're just, you know, embracing each other in slow motion. It works. So I thought I'm using all the cliches, but I try to um, show something more than that, something beyond that. And this is why this song is the only text in the film that is quite significant. It's a kind of farewell song, and it could imply the farewell of a love or a beloved, but it could also be a farewell to life. And the film uh, brings you on board, and I'd love to invite you now to watch it so that I don't have to talk about it anymore. <laughs> Thank you.